Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. And so, it has come to this. An episode, basically, on my PhD thesis. This week, we are just going to jump right in, because there's a lot of science to cover, a lot of craziness to brush aside, and a lot of carbon to capture. Global climate change and the effect that humans have on it is a very hot debate topic amongst politicians and the general public but one for which there is nearly unanimous consensus in the scientific community. Even calling it climate change versus global warming is a big thing, with people suggesting that even altering the wording suggests that a scientist are trying to trick them for some reason. And despite the fact that the effects of climate change are already costing some communities millions of dollars annually, and that the evidence is nigh insurmountable, and that even the people burning coal and drilling for oil all agree that it's happening, and are spending huge amounts of money to create technologies to deal with it, our politicians in the United States, at least, are fighting to delay progress and research. So why is this happening? I think in many cases, just as with any pseudoscientific or conspiracy belief, it is a lack of fundamental knowledge, compounded by the fact that climate science is actually very complicated and nonlinear in its effects, besides the constant propaganda efforts made. Mix this with the fact that climate change had, like, maybe the worst public face ever, that of Al Gore for a number of years, and we get a public that acts like we are literally starting to round up folks for death camps every time we plug in a high-efficiency light bulb. Add to this the surrounding conspiracy beliefs of chemtrails, aerosol pollution in the upper atmosphere, and all kinds of wacky crap, and you get a mix of just complete disinformation and bad science really competing with very good, solid science for the facts. So strap yourselves in for an episode of Heavy Science here on the Mad Scientist Podcast. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 20, Climate Change. Before we start this episode... I actually want to give a huge shout out to one of my fellow Dark Myth podcast members, the Bohemian Podcast. That's B-O-H-E-M-I-C-A-N, which stands for Bohemian American. The show looks into the history, cultural traditions, and people of the Czech Republic from the eyes of two American expats who are living there currently. The show's really great, and it's super interesting, about a part of the world that we really don't get a whole lot of exposure to as Americans, and I think you'll really enjoy the show. Anyways, you can find it at darkmyths.org slash bohemican or also on their website, www.bohemican.com. And of course, on all podcast apps. All right. And now back to the show. Who boy. When I started this episode, I thought for sure it would be a one parter. But man, was I ever wrong. This one will at least take two episodes and potentially three. Although we'll see how far down this rabbit hole we want to go as we peer down it and start the descent. I've already somehow gotten into arguments with people on Twitter about some of the stuff in this episode, and it hasn't even dropped yet. So things are probably going to get pretty crazy. Alright, first things first here. I am in fact a scientist who has so far in my career spent a very large portion of my time trying to create new materials and methods to capture and convert carbon dioxide. Now, I've never received a check from the Chinese government, and I promise if I wanted to trick people with science into giving me loads of money, I would be selling some bullshit product on the internet to dupes, 
like alkaline water or miracle seeds. In performing my research, I have seen the evidence of carbon dioxide acting as a greenhouse gas in my experiments that I run myself, as well as in following the research on this topic that my materials are used for. Specifically, my work focused on the creation of nanomaterials for the capture and conversion of carbon dioxide from both high-concentration sources, such as coal-burning power plants, as well as low-concentration sources, such as the upper atmosphere. The materials I made basically attempted to capture carbon dioxide, also known as CO2, by causing it to react with the surface of my structure or with organic chemicals I placed onto the surface, in order to capture carbon dioxide selectively over other things in the air. The way that the chemical or energy industry captures carbon dioxide now is the use of what is known as a liquid amine scrubber. Basically imagine a big cylinder where gas is flown up while droplets of liquid nitrogen compounds flow down. The nitrogen and the amine droplets react with the carbon dioxide in the gas to remove them, but let the other stuff flow right through. This creates a stream coming out of the energy plant that is basically free of carbon dioxide but leaves you with another stream of carbon dioxide-rich amines. This amine liquid then has to be heated to collect the carbon dioxide, a process that requires a lot of energy to be put in, which negates a lot of the benefit of capturing carbon dioxide in the first place, since you generate carbon dioxide by creating energy which is needed to remove carbon dioxide from the amines. My work has focused on this issue, creating materials that captured carbon dioxide and could be regenerated with much less energy being put in making the total process capture more carbon dioxide than it puts out. Another related problem, though, is once we capture all that carbon dioxide, what the hell do we do with it? Some people have proposed sticking it in the ground like in old mine shafts, or even dumping it into the ocean. All processes are plans that have big problems with them. For example, let's say we stick it all into an old mine shaft. Well, what if something like an earthquake happens? Or the gas finds a way to leak out or something? All we've really done in that scenario is kind of kick the can down the road. Or even worse, created a nightmare scenario where carbon dioxide leaks to a surrounding town and suffocates everyone in their sleep. So overall, not a super great option, really. The second big thing for researchers like myself at the moment is to try and convert carbon dioxide into something useful. A chemical that we can use in our lives or in industry. Some have proposed making ethanol or acetic acid from the captured carbon. But the problem with all of these technologies is that you require a lot of energy input to cause this conversion, and so it isn't super economical or environmentally feasible at the moment. Some other possibilities are using carbon dioxide as a feed source for growing plants or bacteria, or even using a mixture of liquid amine scrubber style system above with bacteria bubbles to soak up carbon dioxide in a more efficient way than before. And since bacteria can be engineered to eat CO2 and create things like pharmaceuticals, it may be a really interesting and good option. I actually had the benefit of seeing the head researcher on that particular project presented at a conference. And honestly, it's probably one of my favorite, like, niche ways to capture carbon dioxide. I think it'll be really interesting if that one gets off the ground. Notice that in none of those future technologies or big research areas I mentioned is the topic of whether or not carbon dioxide contributes to climate change. Despite what some on news channels whose names rhyme with box may try and tell you, there is nearly unanimous consensus amongst the scientific community that climate change is happening and is primarily caused by carbon dioxide released by humans. And frankly, the only people who don't agree are not experts or even researchers working in the field, 
but are included in these studies to make them accurate to this entire scientific community. It's kind of like saying 9 out of 10 dentists recommend brushing your teeth or something. Like, yeah, no crap. If you look hard enough, you can always find 10% of a given field that is completely crazy. So a review of these studies by Cook et al., published in 2006, found that on average, 97% of scientists polled agreed that climate change is human-caused. Furthermore, when looking at those who are experts in climate change or atmospheric science, the number jumps to between 99 and 100%, pretty much as good as you can possibly get and still be statistically telling the truth in a study. So those who disagree are not climate scientists, physical chemists, or any other even nearly related field. I mean, crap, man. If you included climate scientists in a survey on some field unrelated to them, I bet you would get a couple of percent answering the completely wrong thing. Interestingly, though, only 16% of the public knows that the consensus is this high. Even more interesting, if asked whether human-released carbon dioxide is a primary or secondary cause of climate change, 100% of scientists polled said that it was either a primary or secondary cause. So why does the public disagree if 100% of the scientific community agrees that humans are either the primary or secondary cause of global warming? Like I said in the intro, I think a lot of it is public misperceptions or just lack of knowledge. I mean, how does climate change happen? Why does releasing carbon dioxide specifically, something that is produced naturally on Earth all the time, create such a big problem now? And why the rush to get things done? So we're going to dive into all of that today on this episode. In the first place, let's talk about some history of this idea. The first real mention of some possible effect of human-released pollutants into the upper atmosphere started with questions about whether or not the atmosphere of the past was any different than the atmosphere of the present. Originally, people held to theories such as the Neptunist theory, which posited that all rocks on the surface of the Earth, basically everything on the surface of the Earth, came from the flood of Noah. So, every giant boulder you see, every layer of soil, all of that was moved around by God flooding the Earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And so if we see some weird stuff like in a field in Europe or something, well, whatever, it was just the flood. But people started to ask themselves, if it wasn't the biblical flood then what had caused some of these changes or weird things that people were seeing? And what evidence is there even for these changes at all? Like, why expect the atmosphere to change if the planet has been made perfectly by some god or gods? Prior to the 18th century, we really didn't have an answer to that. And it wasn't until we began finding evidence of geological ages with varying temperatures that we suspected something like a cyclic or periodic change in the atmospheric temperature and climate of the Earth. All of this kind of came about at the same time as the discovery of dinosaurs, and so kind of like the erosion of the biblical narrative about what the Earth was like before, you know, normal human remembrance, I guess. And so the evidence that not only were the, you know, fauna, the animals, the plants of the Earth different back then, but also that the Earth itself might have been different, that the climate may have been different, or the, uh, the atmosphere composition itself. The evidence for that kind of stuff really, at first, were things like aquatic sediments, or even fossils, showing up on land, 
So things like seashells or fishbone fossils, or the evidence of past coral reefs, and areas that hadn't been underwater in recorded history. Other evidence were found as we started to dig down into the Earth's surface. So it became clear as you got lower that different layers of rock type, fossils, and leftover organic matter became observed, suggesting that over time the climate and surrounding area had changed dramatically as these layers of soil and rock started to grow on top of each other. This idea was really laid out by Nicholas Steno in 1686, who developed the principles of geological timescales, basically saying that each rock layer represented a slice in time, and as you got deeper, you went farther back. And it really wasn't until James Hutton published his theory on the Earth and presented it before the Royal Society of Edinburgh in 1785 that the idea of regenerating surface of the Earth moved by natural forces was started and maintained. So Hutton suggested that the hot center of the Earth formed new rock, while water and air eroded rock and soil from the surface of the Earth, causing these sediments to flow through the ocean or be churned back into the core of the Earth over long periods of time. And this is pretty much our idea today, with some changes occurring for things like um, plate tectonics and stuff like that. And now we know that the core is made of iron and pretty um, inaccessible. But overall, these ideas are still pretty much pretty much the dominant ones in geology. In looking at these geological changes, we also started to notice changes that seem to suggest atmospheric alterations as well. For example, the evidence of great periods where the Earth was basically covered by frost and cold also known as ice ages, led to the supposition that the atmosphere could turn very cold, very hot, and cycle back and forth. The ice ages were supposed by Jean-Pierre Perraudin, who suggested that glaciers may be the source of giant boulders within the valleys of the Alps, which he suggested could only have been moved and shaped by some tremendous forces. See, when glaciers form and then melt and move about, they erode and shift huge swaths of land around them, creating basically lines along the land, which are known today as moraines, which is spelled M-O-R-A-I-N-E-S if you want to Google them. Anyways, the idea of glacial movement causing valleys and big debris, which was at the time supposed to be caused by Noah's flood again, was then taken up by Louis Agassiz, a famous scientist at the time, who developed this idea of the Ice Ages pretty much as we know them now. The Ice Age theory and the theory that these big rocks and a lot of our geological changes were formed by glaciers moving around during the Ice Age became pretty much accepted in this period, from its first inception in 1815 to widespread agreement in the 1870s. So, so far we've talked about changing notions on what the Earth has looked like over time, what the geology of the Earth is like, and how we can know about the past of the Earth by going deeper into the ground. And we've also talked a little bit about how the idea that the climate could change and specifically cycle from periods of very cold to very hot were started around this time period of 1815 to 1870. Well, simultaneously to these ideas, a scientist famous to any chemical engineer or mathematician worth their salt, Joseph Foyer, began running tests on temperature and heat exchange. He developed what is known as Foyer's Law of Heat Flux, which basically states that a change in temperature is equivalent to some constant times the amount of heat put into the system times its mass. Just as an aside here, or like a tangent, the word flux really does mean something, although flux capacitor doesn't. A flux basically is the flow of some variable, or 
like a flux is basically um, the flow of some value or the flow of some energy or mass through a given area. So when you have flow of a fluid through a pipe, the fluid mass is fluxing through the area of the pipe and it fluxes tangential. So if you have a flux going down the pipe, you would say that you have flux in the X direction or the direction that is tangential to the surface area of the pipe itself. That sentence might not have meant anything to you, but basically flux is a thing. Anyways, Foyer found that the earth was significantly warmer than it should have been if the atmosphere did not provide some protection from the vacuum of space. So if we look at other planets or the moon, we now know that they are extremely cold and that's because they have no atmosphere. And Foyer kind of started playing with his idea back then. Through measurements, Foyer found that specifically the energy arriving to the surface of the earth as visible light wave from the sun appeared to be unaffected by the atmosphere. So the energy flows down and it gets absorbed by the surface and then infrared radiation is emitted by that surface. However, the infrared waves released cannot travel efficiently through the atmosphere, meaning that this extra energy stays within the atmosphere of the Earth. This provides the Earth with the excess energy needed to keep it at the temperatures we enjoy today. But the mechanism of why exactly the atmosphere can't transmit the infrared waves back into the atmosphere were not known at the time. It wasn't until 1864 that John Tyndall investigated how infrared waves affect the gases which make up the atmosphere. Now, this is really one of the pillars of the global warming debate here, at least from the scientific perspective. So let's take a step back and reassess where we are at. We are around the years 1860 to 1870, and the scientific community has been convinced by the evidence of the Ice Ages that the climate can change over time. Furthermore, Foyer has proven that the atmosphere seems to hold infrared radiation. This causes the atmosphere and the surface of the Earth specifically to stay warmer than other planets which don't have an atmosphere. So what seems to happen is that visible light is shot to us from the sun. The visible light transmits through the atmosphere without a problem, basically just kind of flowing through freely. And then that light energy is absorbed by the surface of the Earth, and then the surface releases infrared radiation. The infrared radiation, though, cannot transmit through the atmosphere, and so it stays stuck on Earth with us, causing the planet to be warm. Tyndall is now attempting to find the reason these infrared waves can't seem to get through the atmosphere, by shooting infrared radiation at various gases. And what he found specifically is that a special class of gases, and in particular the ones that he saw, were water vapor, hydrocarbons like methane, and carbon dioxide absorb a huge amount of infrared radiation and stop them from being transmitted. These gases and others that absorb infrared light are what are known as greenhouse gases. Molecules which, when hit with infrared light, block the energy from escaping, similar to how a greenhouse allows light in but keeps heat trapped. Specifically what happens, and we only found this out much later, is that the bonds within the carbon dioxide molecule are just in the correct range in terms of their quantum mechanical energy levels that they absorb infrared light. 
And so when infrared energy hits the molecule, it will vibrate. Then when it stops vibrating, it will release that energy back into the atmosphere. This effect is seriously observed in every single undergraduate physical or organic chemistry classroom when they do Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, or FTIR. And it's probably something we'll be teaching the high schoolers soon. It really is, in my opinion, one of the fundamental questions that those who deny climate change can't answer, or usually have no knowledge of being the case. It's a huge deal, and it led to the obvious suggestion that the changes in the climate may have something to do with the composition of the climate itself. So, for instance, in times where the temperatures seem hotter, perhaps volcanoes have released excessive amounts of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in large amounts, causing the planet to warm. On the other hand, in cases where things begin to cool, potentially there are less greenhouse gases. This idea, along with competing theories about solar variation, shifts in ocean currents and mountain ranges, and others began to then be debated to find the cause of the noted changes in the atmospheric composition and climate of the Earth over time. Zvante Arrhenius was one of the first scientists to mathematically model how changes in carbon dioxide could alter the temperature of the Earth. Specifically, he used the work of Samuel Pierpoint Langley, who tried to calculate the temperature of the moon's surface using the laws of Fourier by measuring the amount of infrared radiation leaving the moon and coming to Earth. Arrhenius sort of took that idea and used it to see what effect carbon dioxide and radiation leaving our atmosphere specifically had on the temperatures of the Earth. And what he found at the time was that a cut of half of atmospheric carbon dioxide levels was enough to cause an ice age, and a doubling of atmospheric CO2 from that period would result in a warming of 5 to 6 degrees Celsius. And these calculations are pretty much basic science, looking at the amount of infrared radiation greenhouse gases take in, how much energy is brought to the Earth on average by the sun, and therefore how much the average temperature of the Earth's surface would vary with increased carbon dioxide levels. It's pretty cut and dry stuff. Where it gets interesting and where it gets complicated is what effect humans have on increased carbon dioxide levels and what further changes may result from small changes in temperature. For example, if we lower the temperature of the planet one degree on average, how will that affect other factors which may lower the temperature or carbon dioxide level even further? So if the temperature is lowered by one degree, perhaps the Arctic produces and keeps more snow and ice resulting in more light bouncing back from the surface into the atmosphere, causing more extreme weather patterns. Maybe one degree is enough to raise the temperature of the ocean enough to kill certain species of fish, as already being observed on the east coast of North America. Maybe one degree is enough to kill off certain species of trees or plants, further increasing the amount of carbon dioxide that gets stuck in the atmosphere, as opposed to being taken in by plant respiration. Or maybe this change in temperature isn't enough to cause anything at all to happen. It's really quite complicated what will occur from climate change. But the fact that climate or temperature of the atmosphere and carbon dioxide are linked is seriously stone-cold science fact. At least it's factual as any other science stuff. So we know, and I hope that you are convinced. And if you are not, let me know so I can send you an infrared readout of carbon dioxide absorbing significantly more infrared light than other surrounding gases that CO2 and other greenhouse gases like water vapor and methane lead to increased atmospheric temperatures. There is a long history of this, and a lot of scientific evidence to back it up. Well, then what effect will humans releasing lots of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere cause? 
Is the atmosphere able to heal itself or correct for this amount of extra carbon dioxide? Or will it necessarily increase temperatures? And is there a certain point where the increase is no longer fixable or reversible? Well, all of this has to do with what is known as the carbon cycle, or how carbon dioxide itself is naturally put into and taken out of the atmosphere. The carbon cycle in general goes something like this. Carbon dioxide is released as a natural byproduct of respiration. Basically, we breathe in air and we release CO2, as do all animals pretty much. Microbes and bacteria also release carbon dioxide via respiration and decomposition of organic matter. So that released carbon dioxide is then pumped into the air, or not really pumped, but it's released to the air. The CO2 in the air is then taken in by plants, which eventually makes its way down as carbon products, basically, into the soil and is stored over long periods of time as rock, soil, sediment, whatever. Basically, various carbon-containing compounds. Some of this carbon does get re-released. For example, as a byproduct of microbes or bacteria again in the soil, digesting or decomposing dead plants. Another cycle for carbon dioxide, naturally, is the cycle in the ocean, where CO2 gets dissolved into the water naturally through equilibrium exchange, where things like plants or animals or microbes or whatever use it up and then release it out again. And some of it does get stuck at the bottom of the ocean and becomes part of the soil or crust of the earth as various carbon compounds or rocks and stuff. And in the ocean, we have something interesting also happening, because carbon dioxide makes water acidic. So the amount of carbon dioxide dissolved in the ocean determines the acidity level of the ocean itself, and different bodies of water generally. So it's actually really important for aquatic life, right? Anyone who's ever owned a fish in a fish tank will tell you that if the pH is off just a little bit, that fish may die. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Now, these processes in nature are generally in pretty alright equilibrium with themselves. Basically, with any big changes over, being due to things like volcanic eruptions, which release loads of carbon as carbon dioxide gas when they erupt. It is a cycle, which means that it will eventually even itself out to an equilibrium state with extra carbon that is added in. But that equilibrium state will be one with either more or less carbon dioxide in the air than what was started. So for example, if there is a huge number of volcanic eruptions in a short period of time, we can expect a local level of increased CO2 levels. Whereas if something is like a period where there is a huge decrease in the number of animals releasing carbon dioxide, we may expect lower CO2 in the atmosphere. And this would relate to changing temperatures as well, with higher carbon content in the atmosphere, meaning more infrared radiation being kept, leading to higher temperatures, and lower carbon, meaning more infrared radiation can escape into space, leading to lower temperatures. But see, this is an equilibrium process, with carbon being released and absorbed or used by organisms, taken into the soil or ocean, all the stuff we explained above. But what happens if we add an external source to this equilibrium process? In other words, what occurs when we start adding in extra carbon dioxide to the cycle? Carbon dioxide that naturally would not be added to the system normally. 
Well, what happens to any equilibrium system when you add an external source to it? It jumps out of equilibrium, right? I think the best explanation of this is still one of the most famous, that of the rabbits and hawks. Imagine you have a forest meadow where there are rabbits and there are hawks. Let's say at the beginning we have more rabbits than we have hawks. Now over time, the hawks will eat the rabbits, lowering the population of rabbits. This will then in turn cause some of the hawks to go hungry, making them breed less and die out, leading to decreased hawk populations. The decreased hawk populations will then mean less rabbits are being hunted and eaten, so the rabbit population will increase. And now we're back at our beginning state. And so the equilibrium between rabbits and hawks will continue. Well, imagine you now add in one extra hawk. This one hawk may not make a big difference, and maybe it eats an extra rabbit or two, but the equilibrium sticks around, and after a few cycles, things get back to normal. But what if you add in, like, double the original hawk population? Well, then the system goes out of equilibrium, and we come to a point where the cyclic nature of these two populations are no longer dependent on one another. So you add double the hawks, and they eat all of the rabbits, or enough of them anyways to cause the rabbit population to completely die out. Well, now your equilibrium system is broken. This is the idea of there being an important or specific carbon concentration value where the equilibrium can no longer be regained. It's a lot more complicated than the rabbit and hawk analogy, but the same ideas in general apply. Basically, this carbon concentration would represent the point where we can no longer just stop outputting carbon to allow the atmospheric temperatures to equilibrate back to their standard levels for our time period. Instead, we have hit a point where increasing temperatures are now inevitable. And so we need to start either capturing carbon from the atmosphere or building biospheres or something, because the temperature is going to rise. Of course, we should still stop adding carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, since the more we put out, the more we will eventually need to capture. But we have passed that important milestone point. As of today, we release around 38.2 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the air a year. To put that number in perspective, it is estimated that the total volcanic output on the surface of the Earth is around 500 million tons per year. That means we as a species are putting 70 times as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as every volcano on the Earth. So it's pretty bad. Another way of stating this is looking at specific volcanic eruptions. The 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens released 10 million tons of CO2 in the atmosphere in 9 hours. And that may seem like a lot, but it takes humans only around 3 hours to release the equivalent amount of carbon dioxide. So anyone that tries to tell you we are nothing compared to natural sources like volcanoes is getting their facts wrong. At the rate we're going... We increase the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide by 20 parts per million every 10 years, or 2 parts per million a year. And for some more figures here to put things in perspective, remember how before I said carbon dioxide levels are in equilibrium, where eventually too much will cause changes that result in a net decrease in carbon content, while too little will cause net increases in carbon content in the atmosphere? Well... Those swings have, over the past 400,000 years, 
gone from a low of around 180 parts per million to 300 parts per million, with the vast majority of time being somewhere between those ranges. Since the 1950s, we broke above the maximum line and has been rising extremely quickly ever since. So since 400,000 years ago, approximately the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere only went between 100 to 300 parts per million, while we are now around 410 parts per million, more than it has ever been since humans basically started using tools. Alright, well, how do we release so much carbon dioxide? If we break down our carbon dioxide emissions, 41% of them come from energy, 16% from road transport, 5% from other transport, which I assume they mean is boats or airplanes and not like horses, 20% from industry, 6% from residential sources, and 10% from other sectors, such as agriculture and whatever. So the vast majority of carbon emissions come from flue gas, either from transportation vehicles or energy production in the burning of fossil fuels. Flue gas is specifically the stuff that is wasted out of a fossil fuel burning power plant, and is in fact quite similar to the stuff that is shot out of your car's exhaust. It's composed of mostly nitrogen, with about 12-15% to by volume water vapor, and maybe 4-8% to by volume carbon dioxide, with some leftover stuff being sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and some trace amounts of oxygen and carbon monoxide. This stuff is generated by the burning of fossil fuel energy sources such as gasoline, propane, butane, coal, pretty much the things we think of as standard energy generating items. This is by far the majority of the carbon dioxide emissions going into the atmosphere, and so it is by reducing the burning of fossil fuels, or by capturing carbon at point sources like fossil fuel plants, where a big chunk of our fight against global warming will happen. And many companies are already investing in these methods or new energy generating technologies. Even huge oil companies are now investing in these technologies and ideas. And there's a big push to stop using coal in lieu of methods that aren't as polluting. So it makes you wonder, why aren't we moving to green energy production methods? Even if we separate out the environmental concerns for a moment here, green energy is the way of the future, right? I mean, we will eventually run out of stuff to burn. So why not begin the process of revolutionizing world energy to a form that does not rely on stuff that is non-renewable? And frankly, why not position ourselves economically to be at the head of this shifting energy market? Well, a big part of the problem is a push to make the ideas seem unimportant or undangerous by the companies and people that tend to make the most money on the worst of the carbon-polluting methods. For example, the coal industry for a very long time, and the railroads that shipped coal, attempted to belittle the idea of environmental pollution and problems as a liberal conspiracy, with the help of oil manufacturers and the chemical industry, unfortunately. And in many ways, this is a big part of their history. It's taken a long time for the chemical industries to kind of get it in their heads that being green or environmentally friendly can also be good for business, something that is being pushed a huge amount at the university level and throughout the conference circuit, I am very happy to say. But there are also plenty of people still making money on this idea, or leveraging it to try and turn it into a political issue. And this is where we're going to pick up in two weeks, at this sort of weird mix of science and politics that carbon capture, the greenhouse effect, and global warming seems to sit. That is it for this week's episode. 
For today's musical outro, we have The Messenger Flood from Staten Island, New York. I've known some of the members of this band since kindergarten, and some of them are playing alongside me in the intro to this podcast. This song is called Moving Parts from their upcoming album called A Parable. It's really good, and I fully suggest that you go check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I will be back in a week with the next roundtable, then two weeks from now with a second part of this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. My logo, as always, was designed by Carrie Shaheen.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.